A quick disclaimer, opinions of host and guest do not represent the views or opinions of functional movement systems. Always consult your physician before beginning any exercise program. This general information is not intended to replace your healthcare professional. Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice, giving you guys a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. The way the human body connects is fascinating. Understanding the body as a whole and not just the sum of its parts brings greater awareness to how everything works together. Today, we explore this concept, also known as regional interdependence. We discuss movement compensation, how we adapt in our movement for better or worse, why our joints favor either mobility or stability, and how this all applies to your movement. We close the episode with another fireside chat with Gray. So let's connect the dots with this episode of the Movement Podcast. Powered by FMS. So, Lee, uh, tell us about the mustache attempt. <laughs> it wasn't an attempt. <laughs> All right, so let's well, make sure we clarify that. Okay. So, like a lot of us right now, I was quarantined. My son, you know, came down with uh, coronavirus. I feel like 99% sure I had it, but I was already quarantined and already in the in the soup, so to speak. So I was like, hey, I'm not going to go to the doctor. So during that time, I just, you know, kind of do what we all do, let myself go, so to speak, and didn't shave, kind of stayed in my pajamas all day and uh, grew me a little beard, kind of a little Grey Cook-esque beard. Okay, so it was a beard, and it, you didn't just grow no, a mustache no, 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 no. and your I just chin didn't, was no, hairless. No, I, just didn't, I didn't do anything. I just didn't shave. I mean, I took a shower, obviously. But, you know, I was in the house for, because oh, it was during right, right around Christmas. So I was hair in the product? house a good Did couple you, weeks. Hair product at all? I never use hair products. See, that's a misconception about me, man. <laughs> this is all natural. I thank my parents for this, this do. Sort of like a Ken doll. I mean, the, the hair you on the say doll that. doesn't move. It's just that way. Um, okay. All right. Yeah. So, so ahead. again, I, I, I had I had the whole beard, had the whole thing, and then I shaved the beard and had the stash. And I think I could pull it off. Right. And I mean, it looked good. So where is it? Well, I mean, like all of us, uh, it didn't pass the wife test. <laughs> you put it to committee. <laughs> yeah. So she didn't like the Burt Reynolds slash Tom Selleck look. Um, but I'm telling you, I, I liked it. I, I wanted to keep it. Um, How long did it last? A couple hours. <laughs> Just a couple hours. Yeah, it was two hours. Ashley, I walked if I were out. to say Smokey and the Bandit, would you know what I was I talking about? Okay, I do. very good. Very good. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, it didn't, didn't, uh, it didn't take. Okay. Um, but uh, you, uh, know, you never know. As much as I liked it, I may just see what happens. Sometimes you got to, you know, be a rebel, Lee. Yeah, but I'd, I just don't think I got that spine in me. Well, most of the people who know us have never seen you with facial hair and have never seen me without it. So we'll just we'll just keep it this way. For yeah, a while. we'll keep it. You know, I, I usually have sleeves. You don't, and it's some it's some it works. There's a reason for that too. Yep, you are wearing <laughs> shoes, so that's good. Yeah, well, it's February. Yeah. So, all right. 
What are we doing today? Well, I would love to continue talking about hairstyles because I actually just got my hair done for the first time in like a year because <laughs> the salon was closed and I wasn't able to. So I'm pretty excited. Um, but today we're actually talking about regional interdependence and we're bringing it up as a, a topic that um, FMS has a lot of education on. And I know that it's something that uh, we've reached before in articles on the website, uh, the gray talks whiteboard you've mentioned it before mm-hmm. and we just want to you know have a conversation and kind of get down to the basics of it and maybe educate some of our listeners on what the uh, theory kind of is what what is regional interdependence okay well well it's a term that I wasn't aware of when Lee and myself and the guys were all working on the functional movement screen it's a concept that I think was obvious to any of us that have looked at the human body as a whole, not as a sum of its parts. But I I can honestly say that I got a better appreciation for that interconnectivity of the body in my neuro classes than I did in my orthopedic classes. And you can comment to that, Lee, with, with the sports medicine and athletic training, where we're always aware that one body part that you may not be aware of could be causing problems in another body part that you're really aware of. So your ankle mobility could compromise your knee stability, your knee hurts. And then we say in clinic all the time, I know where your pain is, but that's not necessarily where the problem is. That confuses some people, but when you were a young athletic trainer, it's a concept where you realize that connection. I honestly think academically we needed to go ahead and call it something, and that's where regional interdependence came from. But I, I never heard the term in my training. It came way after the fact. We were already on this functional journey, and I'm like, oh, that's a nice way to sum it up, mm-hmm. but it's not a practical way to fix it. It's a, it's, a, it's a good theoretical way to discuss it, but it doesn't help the kid two months before they blow their ACL because they've got a lot of other mechanical problems that are creating unnecessary load. Well, isn't that what happens in a lot of situations, whether it's academia, research, or somebody wanting to write an article about something, is that the concept's already out there. And then it starts to become a little bit more mainstream as in function. So in the the 80s, function became a lot more popular about training functionally and functional training, hence functional movement screen. 80s and 90s, it became more popular. So I think someone just needed to say, well, let's, because it become more mainstream, people are talking about this whole idea of functional and movement. Let's throw a term on it and a concept on it, regional interdependence. But it was around a lot longer than that. But at the end of the day, it's, it is the fundamentals of where movement is based off of. So if I'm sitting there rotating, or, or, or okay, m- what most of us do throughout the day, and the analogy I always use, if I'm going to reach up above my head, to get that good liquor I like, because I go top shelf, <laughs> then something is going to be going on in my lower body. So it's not just, we assume, okay, I'm right. raising my hand above my head that I'm going to pick up that top shelf whiskey. Now, back when we were looking at this, I couldn't go top shelf. I had to go way down low because I had to go with the lower level whiskey back then. <laughs> I see. So. But now you go top shelf. But what, I, what am I, my hand is doing is directly impacting what my lower body is doing, what my back is doing, and that's impacting what my hand is doing. Exactly. That's pretty much regional interdependence, right? Exactly. And, and you don't have to have a, a, a significant degree to understand that because we could go as far back as Aristotle who said the whole is always greater than the sum of its parts. So we could add up the contribution of each of your joints, and yet what you just did is even more than that. Just like independently hearing a few instruments and then hearing the band together, that's different things. 
we we've always everybody in martial arts appreciates a better stance as a better punch and a better breath and a better stance is an even better punch mm-hmm. but what did we do here in the west with the awesome thing called exercise that made us have to say oh well now we're doing functional exercise because there was a, a period where people who were exercising didn't function well and I think it was two influences, bodybuilding and healthcare. When you're doing knee rehab, we got really focused with our isokinetic machines, having you sit in a chair and kick out and in, thinking we were doing knee rehab. Mm-hmm. And we got away from our roots, which was this holistic function. It doesn't mean we can't isolate and spot train that knee after surgery. It means if we don't reintegrate that new part back into its orchestra, it'll never play well together. And so we had to start calling exercise functional for the simple fact that a lot of people who were investing a lot of time in exercise weren't expressing good function. And I honestly think it's because we started looking at bodybuilding and the forms that it was producing and assumed, well, if bodybuilding produces a form that aesthetically pleasing, it must be good function too. You ever seen a bodybuilder run? It looks like they got a rash between their legs and their armpits are burning. So they, they, they just, you know, but they pose really well. So, you know, nobody ever had a problem with a gymnast or a mixed martial artist muscle symmetry. Mm-hmm. They develop symmetrical. They're just not so puffed up that they look good, good on stage. So there was a trend when exercise was used for bodybuilding and it was used for specialized mm-hmm. focused rehabilitation. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you reintegrate it back to function or you accept the dysfunction it causes. Brett Jones and I talked one time. He goes, when I'm lifting heavy, I lose function. And Brett was lifting heavy stuff like powerlifting. Mm-hmm. He was also a very good kettlebell athlete. When he's fast and furious with a kettlebell, his function's better. When he's doing a personal record deadlift, his function gets worse because he's more specialized. Well, what you're talking about, and I think getting back to the idea of regional interdependence, is back when people started looking at function, they felt function was mimicking an activity. Let's, let's train and mimic it, this activity. Let's load it. So let's strap a band on it and let's mimic you hitting a ball, kicking, or in my analogy, reaching above head. So if that's what your goal is, let's make sure we resist it and that resistance would be functional. Well, the problem with that is it can actually make the mistakes worse because now if you've got issues, if we go back to my analogy, reaching overhead, when I reach overhead, it's going to put stress on my back. I mean, and your back should be doing certain things in order to avoid that stress. Right. Well, if I don't have good shoulder motion, you better believe I'm still getting that whiskey. That's right. So what am I going to do? You're a guy with a mustache. You deserve some whiskey every now and then. Yes. Well, probably with the mustache, I should probably get white Russians. (laughs) Right? You just keep a little flavor saver, keep something later. Tom Selleck with a little... uh, Yeah. So, but when you're reaching above head, that and you, know, you don't have the shoulder motion, you're going to sacrifice somewhere in the body, and I think that's the idea of regional independence. Your your brain, and I think this is where people get a little bit maybe confused. Your brain is set up to do that, right? So, if I reach above my head without good range of motion in my shoulder, my brain is saying, "I'm going to grab that bottle." So, what do I have to do? I have to gain motion or destabilize or whatever whatever it is somewhere in order to do that. Now, functional training would say, well, just practice reaching above head, not right. worrying about why you can't. That's right. No, and, and the, 
when when I think about the word function as it applies to humans, the very first thing it needs to mean is you haven't lost your adaptability. Because the one thing that you can be sure of is change. The environment's going to change. You're going to change. Your demands are going to change. You're not always going to get optimal anything in rest and regeneration. So if you lose your ability to adapt, you've lost one of the birthrights of humanity. Because the only reason we're here Mm -hmm. is because of our adaptability, not our intelligence. What's an example of adaptability? Said too much. (laughs) Yeah, adaptability means that your body to some degree, is always moldable clay. Uh, Ashley, if you start way more cardio and way less lifting right now, your body is going to change shape in order to help you do that more efficiently, Mm -hmm. conserve calories, and let you express yourself that way. If you cut out a lot of the mileage and start standing in one place lifting heavy things, your body's going to sort of morph into a shape that does that Mm -hmm. better. And it's good because we never know what's laying in front of us and so both our mind and our body, I, I heard somebody talk about mental agility. And if I had to say, you know, when, when I'm trying to talk about somebody who is aging very gracefully, they still have mental agility. Mm-hmm. And I think we can totally appreciate that. But what good is mental agility if you lose your physical agility? And what good is your physical agility if you lose your mental agility? You want your mind and body to mesh. And so number one, we do need to adapt so we can be a baseball player or a golfer or a bourbon top shelf grabber. We, we've got to adapt. But if you adapt so much to be a tennis player that you lose your ability to adapt to anything else, then you've become a tennis thing, but you lost your humanity on the way. Mm-hmm. And that's when we make the joke of you know running left a bigger mark on you than you left on running. Uh, you can't touch your toes, you can't deep squat, and you're trying to explain to me what an efficient, you know, locomotor you are you're not well the positive to that the positive to that is the set principle it's a specific adaptation to impose demands and that's why we exercise why we train the problem is people train too much in one area and forget that they need to train other areas so to speak bicep curls crunches bench press so the the dichotomy of this is you're going to grow strong and age gracefully if you maintain some degree of adaptability but yet we're in a culture right now that prizes specialization. And so you do need to specialize to distinguish yourself, but if you lose your adaptability, then that's all you ever get to be, and most people aren't the best for very long. So you can specialize and have 15 minutes of fame, or you can generalize and keep that adaptability and maybe try to specialize every now and then in something interesting. There's nothing wrong with specializing. I mean, there are specialists that, you know, professional sports, they specialize, and they better believe they need to specialize. Right. But how many of those people are out there? So the book, I think we mentioned last episode, the book called Range. Yes. And that's the idea. And, and, and what a great way that book opens, talking about the Tiger Woods scenario and the, the Federer scenario. One person generalized at everything and then found a love, particularly in tennis and an acumen there. And one person uh, had no choice. Uh, I hate to say, I mean, when you're two years old and, and your dad's hitting right. golf balls, that is the way you connect. And so anything that improves that connection is going to imprint you. Well, and, and both had success, but how much of that success is a burden and how much of that success is a joy is how you get there, I guess. Well, you could almost say that concept 
what we're talking about, range, the adaptib- adaptability, is regional independence. Because totally. you're, you've got to have that, your body needs to have that generalist way of moving before you do all this other crazy stuff that you want to do, whether you specialize, whether you're going to go, you know, whether your goal is to run a marathon, whatever it is, you can't lose that generalist aspect. Well, I've always thought that a lot of our compensation starts with a mobility problem somewhere. And that mobility problem can be due to too much muscle tension in an overused body part, mm-hmm. or it can be due to generalized tissue stiffness over a lot of abuse or maybe even poor joint alignment. But when you lose a degree of freedom in one place, you must give up an equal degree of control in another place. So to your point, you're getting the bourbon, but now it's your low back that is giving up a little bit of control. I could always almost say that your balance is actually compromised as you're reaching if you do it wrong. And so if we simply talk about mobility as freedom, and stability as control, then if one is compromised, the other has no choice but to adjust. And what does that lead to? It leads to the state that a lot of of what our society is right now, because we are, our brains are set up to create what you just described, compensation, to achieve the task. Whatever the task is, we're going to compensate to do it. And if you continue to compensate over and over and over, then that's going to lead to wherever you're compensating is going to be broken down. Mm-hmm. And that's where it leads to pain. And I'm not even saying pain. Over time, it will start to hurt and it will start breaking down. It's just it's undue stress on that certain segment. Because where do most people complain of pain right now? Knees, backs, shoulders, mm-hmm. which are not really where the problem is. No, it's, it's not. And, and there, there's, a, there's a neat way to talk about that. And so compensation is the way you survive the day. Because you've got to. You've got to have that resourcefulness and that adaptability. And I think it goes back to my early career trying to be an athletic trainer. And I realized that, you know, a kid hurts their ankle in the third quarter of a football game. They come off. We look at it. The damage isn't severe, but it's definitely a sprain. We pull out our tape. We stabilize the ankle. We actually lock the ankle Mm -hmm. up. We restrict motion in the ankle so the knee shoulder, hip, T-spine, and foot can compensate a wee bit because this athlete with a taped ankle is still better than the guy Mm -hmm. who's going to replace him. So we're going to finish this game creating a compensation. Now, from that heroic thing, the athlete had a lot of grit, the athletic trainer had a lot of skill, we got the ankle. Now all of a sudden... So you're saying taping an ankle is a heroic thing. Totally heroic thing. <laughs> I we did got that. I, I was a hero a lot. <laughs> All right, now, here's where it becomes the opposite of that. Monday morning, the kid says, my ankle still feels a little bit bad. Could you tape it again? And now, right. 10 years later, ankle tape is a prophylactic measure instead of jump rope to get your ankles mm-hmm. quicker and, and more reactive. So we, did, we, we patched up the situation to survive the day. The minute the knee wrap, the ankle tape, the kinesio tape, the ibuprofen and the CBD become the only way you can train, it's a set of training wheels and you're trying to convince me you're a cyclist. But until the ankle's back and doesn't need tape, I wouldn't call it normal. So the things we do temporarily have a complete justification. But, you know, 
it used to be live to fight another day, live to work another day. Now I guess it's just live to sit another day. Um, but at the same time, that's going to have an erosive quality as well. So you, you, the temporary compensation is acceptable as long as we can identify it. The minute that becomes your default, you got a problem. Well, that's the purpose of the tra- training the right way. That is exactly why training the right way is so important because we all know the problems our society has right now. We sit too much. We don't eat right. We don't sleep. We don't drink enough water, whatever it is. But if you go in and not uh, training the right way, we know those compensations exist. Like you said, you got to survive the day. But when you go into the weight room, that's not the goal. You don't survive. You have to identify and make sure that you are creating a good foundation, this generalist mentality, mm-hmm. because that's where how you move and how you function and make sure you're doing that and not compounding what you just did by surviving the day, not by making it worse. As a concept, is regional interdependence the responsibility of the athlete, the everyday person going into the gym, or is it the coach or trainers to use it as a concept when it comes to their training? Like my my hip hurts today or my ankle hurts today. Is it is it the athlete's responsibility to kind of be aware of this concept to then say, well, it may not actually be what I think it is and then go forward and scale back their training? Or is this a concept that the all the coaches and trainers should be using when someone recognizes, hey, I'm not really feeling that great. This is kind of hurting. Like who's, who, whose hand does this fall into? Let me... Uh... I would love to say it falls in the professional's hands because that's a responsible place for it. But Ashley, let me ask you this question. In the documentary, Supersize Me, all right, uh, what's the guy, Spurlock? Mm-hmm. Mike. Yeah. Whose responsibility was it? They're always going to say, do you want us to supersize it? Mm-hmm. And he would never said no for a month and it nearly killed him. Right. So I hate to say this, but who's responsible for trans fats in your food? You? or the, the, the person who's making your food. You're going to look. You're looking yeah. for trans fats. You're looking for dyes and artificial sweeteners. When you see that, you choose not to consume it. Right, right now, people are going to consistently offer you exercise opportunities, even though in your best interest, it'd be better to find out what your problem is and why you're not responding. Mm-hmm. So I hate to say this uh, because I'm not saying it to the professionals that think like we are. I'm saying mm-hmm. the consumer is getting ready to ask for a more functional fitness product, and then the industry will change. Ultimately, it should be ultimately it should be the athlete, the individual's responsibility. Right now, it's not their responsibility to know everything, but if you know. That's part of why we're doing this is to try to not just educate the professionals, but hopefully if we educate the professionals, that will then filter down to the consumer. But ultimately, it's a concept that everybody should start to appreciate just mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it's movement, it's function. It's not, we call it regional interdependence, but at the end of the day, it's being able to move well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and when, when somebody says, it hurts when I do this, and as a professional, you say, well, we're just not going to do that. Right. That does get us through the temporary day to make sure the workout works out, but that thing ain't going away. Right. And that thing most times is not the problem. That's the, that's the real issue is so the, the general person at home is going to take some Advil because their back hurts. Exactly. Their back is not the issue. Mm-hmm. And it's going to feel better. And the, the real problem is when they go in to see a, see a professional and the professional says, yeah, go, yeah keep taking the Advil right. and stop doing what you're doing. Two weeks, come back and see me. Yep. So, relaxers, you know, right something. now, I think the good analogy, Greg, that you, you use, use quite a bit is what drug companies are advertising to consumers, 
to go in and ask for the drug. Mm-hmm. You watch, you watch the, you watch commercials now on wherever you consume your media because it's not just the normal TV anymore. Yeah. There's there's a lot of drug commercials being pitched to the end consumer. Mm-hmm. They go in and ask the doctor about it, and I think there's no reason this this idea shouldn't be the same way. You, know, you should demand better, if you're a general person going in for exercise, you should de- demand better quality information coming in from your trainer. Exactly. And the trainers, I mean, I'd rather just soon bypass the trainers. Go right to the consumer, tell them what they should be demanding. Definitely. And if they don't get it, go see somebody else. Right. The day I think I, I made a point to try to become a better physical therapist is I was, I was five years out. I had just gotten my board certification in orthopedics. And I started listening to a lot of philosophy tapes. And I backed away from the profession I invested my entire life since high school in and looked at it through the eyes of a non-therapist. And I said to myself, shit, people can put heat on themselves at home. They can put ice, Mm -hmm. elevation, and rest into their life at home. What actually am I doing with this hour that I get to spend with you for 12 to 15 visits? Am I educating you? Am I, you know, preventing things? Am I just basically filling out the paperwork? What am I doing? And I looked at the teaching moments that we have in training, coaching, rehabilitation and said, what are we doing? Are we just basically showing you how to deal with your temporary inflammation and thinking everything is going to true itself back up? Or are we actually taking this episode in your life to show you that wasn't north? I'm going to give you a better physical GPS, and I hope that you will listen to it. And if you need me again, I'll be here. And I I just said, I want everything that comes out of my mouth to be that way because I stepped out of physical therapy and looked back in and said, Oh my gosh, are, is this all I'm doing with this opportunity? And I and I I wanted to educate people and it's never hurt me a bit. I've never once educated somebody so much in physical modalities or physical rehabilitation they didn't need me again. Mm-hmm. And yet I think sometimes that trainers, coaches, and therapists are scared to give away the trick. The trick is stay functional and you won't need me unless you have a bad accident or a disease. But right now, it is the lack of function that's causing a lot of accidents and diseases. (laughs) So so I just, I I think we should all step outside of our preferred uh, profession and really scrutinize, uh, scrutinize it from the outside and say, these people are coming to you and a teaching moment is getting ready to emerge. Are you just going to sell them the comfortable thing that you're used to selling? Or are you going to try to basically go through and find regional interdependence opportunities and never say the word once? Right. Fixing somebody's functional problem or having a 20-minute discussion about regional interdependence, I'd rather fix somebody's problem and them never know the term. It's mm-hmm. a term for us. It's not a term for them. Mm -hmm. And when I did the common sense approach to movement videos, that's what it was. I'm speaking to the choir as professionals, but I wanted everybody to realize what I wrote in the movement book is not what I say to people that I'm training and coaching and treating. You know, I create a teaching moment, can't roll to the left, can't balance on the right, whatever it is, let's work through that. And awareness, breathing, and control comes next. Pain changes movements. The SFMA is a structured, repeatable, movement-based diagnostic system that healthcare professionals use with patients experiencing pain. The SFMA is built around seven fundamental movement patterns and integrates a concept known as regional interdependence, how seemingly unrelated problems are actually driving the dysfunction and causing pain. 
By understanding which patterns to assess further, the clinician develops a differential diagnosis, identifying mobility versus motor control dysfunctions, which allows them to create a more efficient treatment plan. The SFMA is the first system to include diagnosis of motor control dysfunction and provide a systematic approach to reteach the brain proper movement using the neurodevelopmental perspective. Using the SFMA logic, clinicians know exactly where to target their treatments and can easily retest for effectiveness of treatment to return a patient to their activities. Get started today and find a course near you. So before the break, we started talking more towards the professionals. Did you have more for them? Well, yeah, and, and this starts with a good story, and all good stories start in a bar. So me and Mike Boyle are sitting in a bar one day. It's off of a hotel lobby, and we're talking because we've been lecturing all day. And we were talking about movement patterns and the movement screen and the way we're going for patterns, not just parts. And I just sort of started philosophizing. I said, and there are general patterns that exist in the body. As a matter of fact, most joints are flip-flop relationships. Mike said, what do you mean by that? So I grabbed the napkin, because <laughs> all good things are written on a napkin. And I'm like, well, I like to play the game this way, but you can spin it any way you want. If I could give your foot a gift, it would be stability. Because in modern culture, the way we play, we get really flat, weak feet. So if I could give your foot more stability, that'd be the gift. If I could give most ankles a gift, it would be mobility. And I'm like, you see where I'm going with this? If I could give your knee a gift, it would be better stability. Knee, ACL, meniscus, stuff like that. If I could give your hip a gift, and it goes all the way up, and it just shows that yin-yang relationship that, that should exist in the body. And, it, and it's not a hard rule. And so many people look for the exception instead of just accepting the natural pattern of certain joints are architecturally put together to give us freedom, and that freedom gives us awareness and sensitivity. And then certain joints are locked up mechanically and very stable to just transfer energy, the energy that you need to locomote and also the sensation you need to feel. So just like a tuning fork, it's a solid thing. So certain joints lock up very nicely and transmit energy and certain joints adapt very easily and allow us to be sensitive. And it's really cool how those relationships flip-flop like yin and yang, left and right. So basically I wrote in the movement book and Mike Boyle has done in many articles, the joint-by-joint -joint approach. And it's not an approach at all. It's an observation of a natural pattern. And if you look at the overhead deep squat, the sort of signature move on the FMS logo, that is pretty much joint-by-joint singing a perfect song in unison. And when we see that pattern, we don't usually find any other problems. The problem is most people just try to do that mm -hmm. without the journey that gets you there. So, Well, I think part of the, when you say that, Gray, one joint or one area of the body is more, you know, more mobility biased. It doesn't mean it's not stable. You know, I think that's part of when people start going in and try to quote unquote fix things. Just because the ankle is designed to be mobile, doesn't also need to, it needs to be stable. And the knee still has a certain amount of mobility that's required. So when you make that statement, it's, it's not that you're saying that the foot and the ankle one is more, you know, more is more mobility biased, but the foot certainly needs to have some mobility in it. Yeah, and if you if you come to to fitness and performance as you and I did, we we didn't start as coaches on the performance end. We started as therapists and trainers on the broken end, and we got to see what the conveyor belt looked like. 
So most feet weren't damaged because they were too stiff. And, you know, most ankles, and it's like, well, my ankle rolls all the time. It must be loose. No, it's actually rolling because it's very stiff in two directions, and so it gives up its freedom in another. But I'm not trying to say that this rule is so matter-of-fact that you never have to assess, screen, or evaluate somebody again. I'm like, once you've done about 50 movement screens or deep musculoskeletal assessments, if these patterns don't hit you in the face like color combinations and musical notes, you're missing it. These things repeat themselves. Kind of getting playing off of that. You have to find out where the, where the person has a lack of mobility or a lack of stability so you can then train them appropriately. Because I think part of the confusion, really, really when you get down to a grade, you're talking about mobility and stability, yes, right? I, and it's exactly. just which joints are more mobile, which joints are more stable. And you got to have a good balance yin and yang of mobility and stability to move appropriately and allow the proprioceptive and neurological system to transfer the energy wherever it needs to go based off your task. The problem is when you have an injury or you train a certain way or life gets in your way, certain areas may now that should be mobile become more stable. And here's what I'm going to set you up with this. The confusion comes in is when you hear people say, well, you got to have a stable back. And then we tell people, well, you need to have mobility first. Well, you may do something that you may correct a mobility problem by doing something as a stability technique. Explain that. Exactly. Well, many times if we have an interrupt in our life where we're vulnerable or unstable, say a, a back injury, a lot of times your natural response will be a muscle spasm. That muscle spasm can turn into a habitual way that you hold yourself, and before you know it, your back doesn't have full range of motion, right, and there's on, nothing me, wrong with it. I'm going to interrupt you because what you just described is something called a high-threshold strategy. And a high-threshold strategy is basically planking your way through life because your body has been in hostile environments. Where do we see those? We see those in dance, gymnastics, athletics, and in people who are living with a problem that should have easily been rehabilitated. Right, so let me bring it back to where you were going before I interrupt you. So that high-threshold strategy is, in essence, a good thing if it is temporarily, at, temporarily after an injury. <laughs> yeah. But what the research will tell you, people who've had back pain – Keep that high threshold strategy. They do because your abs are supposed to be sensitive to the movements you do. And what we see is the very first muscle sequence that we should see fire, whether you're blinking, sneezing, or taking a step, is basically your multifidus, the little bitty muscles on each side of your vertebrae. Then your transverse abdominus comes on. That's the horizontally fiber-oriented corset around your midsection. And if your TA doesn't come on and your obliques do, well, they're already your directional abs. And they can easily have a full-on contraction and sort of somewhat do the job of the TA, but you lose sensitivity. So the fastest people don't have a high threshold strategy. And the punches that hit the hardest don't come from this point of tension. They come from Bruce Lee hopping around totally relaxed and then all of a sudden, boom. Your best contractions come from a state of relaxation. And so if you're always partially tense in your core, you cannot spontaneously get that power to travel from your legs to arms or vice versa. You're always one foot on the brake, one foot on the gas. It's an inefficient way to go, but it's the 
way that a lot of people have to live. And if you're driving in a hostile environment, that's the first thing they teach you in special ops is you drive with both feet because you might have to start and stop. But it breaks the car down quicker, and it's not a good habit to get into. So why do you always say, go with mobility first? When you talk about the back, the back has to be stable, and you have to have that ability to stiffen. Mm-hmm. But why do you say go mobility first? Well, what when I say that, what most people hear is stretch, manipulate, and mobilize. Mm-hmm. I didn't tell you what to do. I said do what clears mobility. And what you may find out is the thing the reason that person's not mobile is a huge amount of muscular tension. And and I don't want to go there, but we don't know why. So you can evaluate and find out, oh, this isn't a mobility problem at all. This is the parking brakes on because there's no stability behind this wall. And so this person has developed this habitual tension to stay out of harm's way. Um, so all I'm saying is do something that reveals more mobility. I didn't say to stretch because a lot of times I can take you off your feet and see your leg raise go way better than your toe touch looks. That's exactly what I was going to say the same thing. So when you got somebody who can't touch their toes, you lay them down, they got a poor leg raise, the assumption is you have to stretch the hamstrings. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's not always the case. No, we can we can do a core activation and pick up 30 degrees. So it's literally the way you're playing body parts against each other. And so if you find a mobility problem, I'm saying explain it and explain it by a practical change of it. We call that a reset over in SFMA world, reset. And if I can make this appreciable change in your body, what can I give you between now and next Tuesday to reinforce and hold on to that? And the only way to do that is I've got to convince you to stop doing some things and do a little more of this supplementation. But my full intention is I don't want you to be on correctives the rest of your life. But I do have to get you to quit doing the wrong thing and recalibrate the right thing. And that inconveniently sometimes takes three weeks. And I just can't go a week without doing swings or running. So I guess I'll just take the ibuprofen. Right. So you're, in essence, you're trying to get back to what you were describing a few minutes ago. Better timing, better sequencing of the muscles. Because a lot of times what happens, you're, that, what we just described with tension in the hamstrings is survival mode. You're using tension to basically hold yourself up, which happens to me quite a bit. Um, But anyway, moving on. But that's what you're describing. It's create better timing and sequencing, which we would kind of categorize that as still a mobility technique, but you're tapping on the neurological system. Exactly. Which some people may look at as a stability technique. It doesn't matter what you call it. You're going after the end outcome. Yes. I'm, I'm number one, I'm going for the weakest link. I'm going for the bottleneck in the system. And what I'm saying to everybody is if the weakest link is your tightest segment, then not only in it's not moving is it making everything else compensate, but it's also depriving you of a huge amount of sensory information that you will use to process coordination, balance, motor control, and timing. And so my point is, why would we even work on that when the information to make us do it right is lacking, right? Do we just keep writing on the blackboard or do we get the kids some glasses so they can actually see what's going on? Because their response is always going to be the same as long as the sensory information is restricted or compromised. So we got to clear mobility, but I'm not telling you what to do. Um, and, And 
going after mobility with stretching is always going to temporarily change it, but it's not going to give you this great thing. So one of the things we do is whenever I get a change in mobility clinically or on the gym floor, the very first thing I think is, did I compromise stability or not? And for those of you listening that know what the motor control screen is, that's my feedback loop. In one minute, I can have an answer of whether did I overdose mobility or not? Because we can do toe touch progression. We can change your mobility on your feet by 10 inches. What I want to know is, is there a side effect to this good dosage? And if I basically hurt your balance by 20% by picking up your mobility by 20%, the on-ramp's too steep. I I should have left some of that tone and tension because you still got to get to your car. So I I really think when we are really good at gaining mobility, we have to ask ourselves what could have been lost. And that's why I keep going back and forth to that motor control screen when I'm refining techniques with people. So you both mentioned that this was a concept that you kind of learned after you became professionals, right? So with that... It was a term we learned. It was a concept. The the concept we knew long before the term came out. So anyone who maybe hasn't been thinking about it this way and they they have their clients that they, they want to start implementing it or have a better understanding of it, what's the first step of maybe understanding this and and implementing strategies for their clients or or athletes shameless plug do a movement screen but don't talk to somebody about their score take what you just learned from their lunge or their push-up put them in a position where they can become self-aware give them a way to work on that but don't practice the test and then show that the test has Mm -hmm. changed and when you get good you can do that in a single session um if you're just learning you should easily be able to do it within three if you follow some rules but create a teaching moment but don't tell somebody about function and don't explain the screen to them use the screen to find out where their bottleneck is and then use your own practical exercise knowledge to let them experience that bottleneck from every direction mm-hmm. and then make it go away <laughs> i would argue do it get get a movement screen done to you go through a so you see and can feel all the different movements try to try to rotate with your feet in a symmetrical base versus a split stance and how much that locks you up, how much you know you need hip mobility to rotate versus your upper body. So it's just you basically go through some movements, lock one area up, don't use your your, uh, elbow to reach for something and see what you do. You'll figure out how to get there. You just may use another body part. Yeah. And now it's time for our fireside chat with Gray Cook. Hey, guys. uh, I want to reach out and talk to you real quick about some things. The things we say inside our head often are heard as the truth. And when you say them in your head about your own movement, it's really hard not to pull that into your profession if this is the kind of thing you do for a living. So, you know, I'm 54. I've had all those humbling experiences. You bend over and pick something up and you're like, God, I'm weak. I need to get in shape. Or you hit two flights of steps and you're like, God, I'm, I'm, I'm out of shape. I need to get fit. Well, the other way to look at that is just the object you just lifted and thought you were weak. Why don't you just say that really felt heavy? 
And when you run up the two flights of steps and takes a minute and a half to catch your breath, why don't you just say, maybe I did that in a very dysfunctional way? In both situations, I'm questioning your efficiency, not your ability. Now, let me bring it to a very relevant place for those of us in rehab and strength conditioning and personal fitness. When I went through the RKC, Pavel showed me some things, and he's still showing people at Strong First how to do these, how to make the kettlebell seem lighter right now. Think about what I'm saying. How can I take a weight and make it feel lighter right now? You can't get stronger right now, but you can get better prepared, you can get better organized, and you can listen to the rules of leverage and gravity and biomechanics. So every exercise has a strategic way of getting on board with it. If you watch a Turkish getup on YouTube and try it, it's not going to go well. It's going to feel very heavy. If Brett Jones is standing beside you, it's going to become lighter instantly because of the way he tells you to move, align yourself, and breathe. It gets back to our awareness of the situation, the breathing we bring to it, and then the control we take ownership for. So many times when people say, geez, I need to get back into fitness. I did X the other day and felt so unfit. My very first thing is, I think maybe you approached it dysfunctional and inefficient. How many of these things can be managed on the front end and how many of these things actually have to be corrected over time? But every time I've ever worked out recently, I'm like, oh, let me make this feel lighter. And I simply organize myself differently. If you can embrace coaching, I think you can say, let's take a weight that feels heavy and see if we can do some things in this session to make it seem lighter. Another way to say that is more reps with the exact same energy. So there's a lot of things we can do with our coaching of alignment and movement and posture and pattern to make hard tasks seem easy. And I've done this as a physical educator with kids who are having difficulty on the balance beam. When I was going through some MoveNet stuff with Erwan LaCour, the first thing he gave us permission to do on a balance beam is to play, not perform. But yet when I took a balance beam to a fitness situation, had a bunch of professionals going through the FCS workshop, what did we see? A bunch of people trying to make me think they had better balance than they did. You're going to fall off the damn board. Just go ahead and fall off of it. Breathe, laugh, and try again. Nope, try again. This time, shift before you lift. This time, bend your knees a little bit. This time, relax your shoulders and quit flapping your arms. So very often, I think we don't use the technology and the the coaching skill we have to make the current situation seem easier. Number one, by allowing for that playfulness. And number two, by only coaching the things that make the weight feel lighter or the things seem easier and leaving all your other instructions aside. When I'm rolling to do a a, a kettlebell uh, press, I simply want to find my next support position. Don't tell them any more than that. And what I think you'll do, whether you're coaching yourself after you quit listening to this or coaching somebody else, don't try to make people strong. Make today's task seem lighter through your technical instruction. But if it seems light over a few weeks, at some point, 
they will get stronger because that adaptation is a four to six week journey and you will be stronger, but you can feel stronger right away by remembering what you should be aware of in this situation, the breathing you can bring to it, and the control that you need to own the whole time. Pavel made a hard style swing seem way harder than it was, but then the kettlebell seemed way lighter than it was. Erwan seemed to make balancing very playful, but before you knew it, we had a lot of competent people on a balance beam that weren't competent before. We didn't gain these skills the day I spent with each of these coaches, but I learned how to make the situation easier. So every other time I practiced balancing or lifting something, I was working on efficiency through quality, not dumping quality to see how many I could do. Let's bring that to our personal workouts and let's go share it with some people too. That'll do it for this episode of the Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe and review. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, be sure to first move well, then move often.